Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to today's meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California. As you know, you can find the Commonwealth Club on the internet at commonwealthclub.org. You can see the videos of the club programs on YouTube, catch up with the club on Facebook or Twitter. But we're glad you're here in person today, which is always better. I'm Gloria Duffy, president and CEO of the club. Uh, I'll moderate today's program with our wonderful, wonderful distinguished guest, George P. Schultz, former Secretary of State, distinguished fellow at Stanford University's Hoover Institution, and author of a recent book, Thinking About the Future. In a rich and varied career that has included roles as U.S. Secretary of State, Secretary of the Treasury, Secretary of Labor, George Schultz has aided presidents, confronted national and international crises, and argued passionately that the United States has a vital stake in promoting democratic values and institutions here and around the world. In his many speeches, articles, congressional testimony, and conversations with world leaders, Secretary Schultz has shaped policy and public opinion on topics such as technology, terrorism, drugs, and climate change. The result is a body of work that has influenced the decisions of nations and leaders and impacted the lives of ordinary people. In his newest book, Thinking About the Future, Secretary Schultz has collected and revisited key writings of his own, applying his past thinking to America's most pressing contemporary problems. In the more than half a century since Secretary Schultz entered public life, the world has changed dramatically, but he remains guided by the belief that you can learn about the future or at least relate to it by studying the past and identifying principles that have continuing application to our lives and our world. I am so pleased today that we have a rare chance to hear from one of America's most respected elder statesmen. Please welcome Secretary George Schultz. You write about these key principles and how they've played out in policy over time. The first one that you talk about is accountability. Accountability, and you use a lot of sports metaphors about how uh, team members and individual players in sports are accountable. They're accountable for their performance. They're accountable to their team. They're accountable to their manager. Tell us a little bit uh, about your beliefs about accountability and what are we seeing nationally today in terms of accountability? Well, politics is full of accountability. First of all, if you're a member of Congress or the presidency, you've got to get elected. So you're accountable to the electorate. And there's a decisive moment. You get elected or you don't get elected. But then I think there are all kinds of things that go on in the course of time where you take up a policy and it works or it doesn't work. You have to modify it. But you need to always have that principle of accountability that guides you. I think it's true of any organization. And you mentioned sports. I think one reason the American people like sports so much is that it's a system of relentless accountability. There you are on the green. There is the ball. There is the hole. You hold the putter. You hit the ball. When the ball starts rolling, the result is unambiguous. Relentless accountability. So I think it's a very fundamental principle that you need to get into whatever it is you're doing. So what, how do you see the issue of accountability today between American government and the American people, between international leaders and the public interest? What do you think about uh, whether accountability is strong today, there's a strong sense of responsibility and accountability. Well, I don't see accountability operating very much. Let me give you an example. When I was, took office, Ronald Reagan and I both thought foreign policy starts in your neighborhood. You know, your neighborhood matters. When you buy a house somewhere, you don't just look at the house. You say, is it safe around here? Where's the church? Where's the schools? Where's the market? And you look at the neighborhood very carefully. It's just as important as the house. So my first trip out of the country was to Canada. 
And the traveling press said, what the hell are you doing going to Canada? Don't you know there's a Cold War going on? I said, who do you think is our biggest trading partner? They said, Germany, Japan. Add them all up, they don't come up to Canada. Furthermore, there are more telephone calls between Canadians and Americans every day than any other two countries. This is our neighbor, so I'm going to be friendly with our neighbor. And my second trip was to Mexico. Well, at that time, Mexico was part of Latin America. But gradually over time with De La Madrid, and then finally Pedro Aspe came along and Mexico became part of North America. We had NAFTA. And all of a sudden, North America meant something. It wasn't just trade. It was community. It was working on threats, climate, environment. Uh, when we had the big um, storm in New Orleans, you remember, and there wasn't enough manpower, what happened? Mexican troops came to help. That was just the neighborhood. So the neighborhood worked. What's happening? We have declared Canada to be a national security threat. Are you kidding me? <laughs> this is the longest undefended border in the world. And Mexico, we're trying to demolish Mexico. What's the point? Mexicans are our friends. If you go on a construction job in California and you don't speak Spanish, you don't, you don't know what's going on. But they do a good job, and they're welcome. And so we're losing that sense of North America, and I think it's a bad loss. So tariffs against Mexico, uh, the wall, how do you feel about Let me tell you something about policies. our trade deficit. If a country consumes more than it produces, it will import more than it exports. That's arithmetic. You don't change that arithmetic by fooling around with tariffs. You change that by consuming less, and it's mostly the federal government's gigantic deficit that is the consumes part here. That's where our trade deficit comes from. So if you're worried about the trade deficit, focus on that. I'm not saying there aren't things to do about tariffs, particularly with China, but that's not gonna do anything about our trade deficit. Be clear about that. So that gets to another issue you, you talk about, another of these principles, and that is trust, trust among leaders. You have some great stories uh, that I hadn't heard before about how, for instance, Edward Shevardnadze, the foreign minister of the Soviet Union, gave you early warning that the Soviets were going to pull out of Afghanistan. Um, and you use that as an example of how you had built trust with him uh, on a more on a personal basis, and and wonderful things can happen uh, when there are trust between leaders. I How are we feel, doing in that regard at this point? I always feel trust is the coin of the realm in any human relationship. If you're dealing with somebody and you trust that person, it's one thing. If you don't trust them, it's another thing. You have friends. Friends are people you trust, and you talk candidly with them, knowing that they're going to go spill the beans. So when Shevardnadze was made the uh, foreign minister of the Soviet Union fairly early on in my time, there was a big meeting in Helsinki, and we heard he was bringing his wife, which they seldom do. So my wife and I said, well, these people are going to be adversaries. Well, lots to argue about, but let's at least be personally friends. So she went on her way to meet Mrs. Shevardnadze and introduce her around and become friends. And I did the same with him. And we argued a lot. We had big differences of opinion, of course. But we never, uh, we always kept our word. If we said we were going to do something, we did it. So we trusted each other. And as Gloria said, at one point he got me aside and he said, I want you to know that we have decided to leave Afghanistan. That was a huge deal. He said, we haven't decided when, and we haven't decided when to announce it. But I'm telling you this so that we can start thinking about how to have it come about in a way that minimizes the loss of human life. So that's, I, I didn't, if he, if he thought I was gonna go blab that to the press, he'd never told me. Well, the only person I told was Ronald Reagan. And we did work it out, so we had to minimize, so it worked. Same was true with my counterpart with China, Wu Chi Chen. And so you, you can develop trust with your adversaries, but you develop trust with your friends, and they count on you. I'll give an example. One time, Helmut Kohl was in Washington, 
And we're sitting in the Oval Office, the President, Helmut Kohl, me, and the interpreter. And Kohl says, Mr. President, a couple of months ago, Mitterrand, President of France, and I went to a cemetery where German and French soldiers were buried, and we had a handshake. And the picture went bananas all over the place. It was a good thing for bringing our countries together. And the president was coming to Germany in about three months. He said, would you go to a cemetery where German and American soldiers are buried? And the president said, yes. So then they came back and they picked a cemetery called Bitburg. So somebody went and looked at it and said, okay. Then the press went and they brushed the snow off the, the cemetery stones and they found SS were buried there and all hell break loose. We tried to get a change, we made suggestions. Helmut Schmidt came over, my friend, and he said he should go to a uh, Holocaust camp before he go to Bitburg. We had already figured that out. And, <clears throat> um, but the press kept coming. Elie Wiesel came to the White House and said in a public statement, Mr. President, your place is not with the SS. Your place is with the victims of the SS. It's a huge pressure, but the Germans wouldn't change. So finally, the president went just there for a brief moment, but he went. And afterwards, he went back to Washington, and I went to Israel to give the talk at the opening of the outdoor Yad Vashem they were building near Jerusalem. And I came back, I stopped in London, and I had a meeting with Margaret Thatcher, and Margaret said, she reflected on this, she said, there's no other leader in the free world who would have taken the beating at home to keep a promise. But there's one thing you know about Ronald Reagan, if he gives you his word, that's it. So trust is the coin of the realm, always. So bringing this up to date, these guiding principles today, what could the U.S. be doing to engender more trust between our leadership and leadership <coughs> of other countries? What are one or two areas that you would advise we work on in that area? Well, you work in many cases privately. You meet with people, your counterparts and you identify problems and you say, okay, let's work on these problems. For example, when I took office as Secretary of State, our relations with China were rocky, much to my surprise. So I went over to Beijing and met with Deng Xiaoping and Wu Qichen, who was my counterpart, foreign minister. And I said, you put on the table everything you want to talk about. I'll put on the table everything I want to talk about and we'll, together we'll make an agenda out of that. And then we'll work our way through that agenda. And I'll agree to come here at least once a year, and Wu Chen, you come to the US at least once a year. And then we meet in about three international meetings. We'll carve out three or four hours just for us, and we'll work our way through this agenda. And it became, uh, we did it, we struggled, we solved problems. We got so we trusted each other. And I remember one occasion, Wu Chen said to me, look, George, you're trying to get here. You're coming like this. This is hard for us. If you come like this, you can get there. Okay, you can solve problems. So that worked. And uh, I think those kinds of things work. And you have to do it with a sense of accountability and straightforwardness and trust. And we're not doing it right now. So another of the key principles uh, has to do with um, technological change and change in communications. Back in the 50s, you were writing and teaching about automation and the impact of automation on the economy. Uh, you talked about the number of uh, farms that were becoming automated and reducing labor on the farms while maintaining productivity in agriculture. Fast forward to today, we're talking a lot about artificial intelligence and the replacement of uh, workers in the workforce by robots and, and AI in general. Um, could you say a little bit about what you think this is doing to the economy, what we need to be doing to make sure our workforce isn't underemployed uh, today? Yes, I think it's something we need to think about very carefully. Because in the past, we've always had change but it's come about fairly slowly and we've been able to accommodate. But that's getting harder and harder because right now, I think the world is kind of on a hinge of history, almost comparable to the time right after World War II. You remember then 
We had some gifted people with names like Truman and Atchison and Marshall and Clayton. And if they look back, what did they see? They saw two world wars. The first one settled in rather vindictive terms that helped lead to the second. They saw 56 million people were killed in the Second World War. They saw the Holocaust. They saw the Great Depression. And they saw the protectionism and currency manipulation that aggravated it. And they said to themselves, what a crummy world. And then, as differentiating themselves from what happened after World War I, they said, we're part of it, whether we like it or not. You remember after World War I, we left. And then they did something else very different from after World War I. Instead of a vindictive peace, they said to Germany and Japan, we're going to keep a few troops around. But why don't you see if you can't make yourself into democratic governance and have your economy hooked into the world economy so you're part of the solution and not part of the problem? So there's a constructive approach. There were 44 nations at Bretton Woods where we worked out the basic rules of the game for international commerce. And then there came the Cold War. There was NATO and there were groups. And by the Cold War, by the time the Cold War was over, there had been created a security and economic commons from which everybody benefited, including us. That commons is coming apart at the seams in part because we're attacking it ourselves. But in the meantime, there are huge changes coming about. People don't realize the importance of the demographic changes that are taking place. Every developed country has low fertility and rising longevity. The age structure of the population is being turned upside down. Furthermore, most are losing working age populations, some fairly rapidly, like China, Russia, Germany, Japan. The three countries with the same um, basic characteristics, Canada, Australia, and the US, which aren't projected to lose working age population, that's because we're immigration countries. I hope we can keep it that way because a huge proportion, for instance, of our Nobel laureates are immigrants. And we need these people. And if you get around farm communities today, you'll say, hey, we need people to pick the strawberries. Come on. So we want immigration. We want it in a reasonably orderly way, but we want it. It helps us. So I think one of the things we're going to see as the rapid technological change comes, and you mentioned artificial intelligence, but let me add 3D printing. I think it, in many ways it's going to wind up being more revolutionary because it's going to be possible to produce most of the things you want close to where you are. And the method of production is going to change. That means that people have to imagine themselves as having two or three jobs of different sort per a career. And you need to be retrained. I've been impressed with what I've seen of community colleges and what they can do in retraining. But you go to any one of them and they'll tell you, if I have somebody who's had a good K-12 education and a reasonably good job where they're resilient, I can retrain them relatively easily. If I get somebody whose K-12 is nothing and they haven't had the, the job of retraining them is very hard. That only underlines the importance as we look to the future of our K-12 education system. And you'd have to say with all the evidence that it's not good at all. The same is true in California. So we need to do something about that and make it first class to meet the future. There are other things we need to do too, but that's just on the human side. Another problem that's threaded through the time of your career has been the issue of drugs in the U.S. And again, you, you bring this up in terms of the war on drugs and Nancy Reagan's role, and but belonging to the Chicago School of Economists, um, you talk about the demand side as well as the supply side. You believe that we've addressed the s supply side, but not the demand side. Could you say a little bit more about that? Well, the war on drugs started in the Nixon administration. I remember it. The president thought that drugs were bad for you. So the object was to restrict their supply. If there wasn't any supply, you couldn't take them. So there was a supply side approach. 
And I can remember once I'm riding up to Camp David with Pat Moynihan, who was counselor in the White House, and he was a self-appointed drug czar. I'm director of the Office of Management Budget, and I'm studying my notes because I happen to make a presentation. And he interrupts me. He says, don't you know we had the biggest drug bust in history yesterday? I said, congratulations. He said, but this was in Marseille. We've broken the French connection. Big deal. And there was kind of a silence. And he said, I suppose you think that as long as there is a big profitable demand for drugs in the United States, there will be a supply. I said to Moynihan, there's hope for you. <laughs> but that's the problem. The supply side approach hasn't worked. We have the highest rate of cocaine use of any of the OED, OECD countries. Drugs are plentiful. And what has happened is a gigantic, very profitable market for illegal drugs in the US. And people come from south of the border, they peddle their drugs, they go back home, they bribe governments, they shoot up the places. And talk about why people from Central America are coming here. Part of the reason is the violence created by our war on drugs. So I think we should have a different approach. And Portugal has tried this with some success. We should keep illegal, but we should decriminalize use. And then invest our money in good treatment centers and invite people to come in. And the evidence in Portugal is that young people will come in and you can work them and probably get them to not to get addicted. Older, more addicted people are a little harder, but still they have a place to come. And gradually, the market for drugs will subside and we'll be in a different ball game, working on the demand side as well as the supply side. And the opioid crisis only underlines the importance of this change in approach. I just comment on Sunday night they replayed the segment on 60 Minutes with Jerome Powell, the Fed chairman, in which he pointed out that opioid addiction is one of the causes of underemployment, unemployment, especially among men in the United States. He, significant enough that he pointed it out as a major cause. Well, it's not only the opioid drugs have an impact on people and they're less employable. That's obvious. You talk or uh, write a bit about the uh, combination of strength and force and the distinction between strength and force in our military power and our uh, actions abroad. Can you say a little bit more about that? What, how, what kind of, how should we maintain our strength? Where does strength end and the need for force begin? Well, I think strength is what you want. Force is a means to an end. But it starts even earlier. I remember when I was in Marine Corps boot camp at the start of World War II, the sergeant hands me my rifle. He says, take good care of this rifle. This is your best friend. And remember one thing. Never point this rifle at anybody unless you're willing to pull the trigger. No empty threats. Boot camp wisdom. If you pay attention to boot camp wisdom, you gain strength. If you draw a bright red line against the use of chemical weapons in Syria, as President Obama did, and then when it's crossed, you don't do anything. No strength left. You have uttered a empty threat. So that's number one. Number two, you've got to see that you develop your strength. Let me give an example. Not long after Ronald Reagan took office, the air traffic controllers went on strike. And the president took a principled position. He said they took an oath of office, they violated it, they're out. And all over the world, people said, is the man crazy? These are the people who keep the planes flying. We had a guy over, he learned something from being governor of California. So he had a person over at the Department of Transportation who had been the chief executive of a major transportation company. So his name was Drew Lewis. And he understood the problem right away. And working with the president, they got management people into the control booth. They got a little help from the military. They had a very aggressive recruiting and training program. And they kept the planes flying. And all of the world people said, hey, the guy plays for keeps. So strength. No force was used, but strength. Now, we did use force in Grenada. 
and very successfully. It was done quickly, decisively, and this is key. When we won militarily, we knew what we wanted to do, and we restored the, the former democratic governance. We helped them with a few things here and there to help their tourist business, and we left. But that was the first time we used force since Vietnam, and it showed that we would. But that's the only time we really used force in the Reagan administration. So, but there was lots of strength. Let me give you another example. During the Cold War, the Soviets had intermediate range missiles aimed at our allies in Europe, Japan, and China. And their diplomatic ploy was, would we risk retaliation by them with their intercontinental ballistic missiles by using ours to defend our allies. They were trying to divide us. So we had a deal with NATO that we'd have a, try to have a negotiation with the Soviets and deploy our own intermediate range missiles if the negotiations didn't succeed. And they went dry. So we deployed cruise missiles in Britain with Margaret Thatcher's help. We deployed cruise missiles in Italy with Andriotti's help. And then came Germany. Ballistic missiles were to be there, and the Soviets thought they could reach Moscow. They were called Pershing missiles. So there's a huge thing. The Soviets pulled out of negotiations. They fanned war talk. The alliance was very strong. Mitterrand flew, dressed the Bundestag. We did all kinds of things to support the Germans. So NATO was very active, and we got the missiles deployed. That was the turning point in the Cold War. Not a shot was fired but it was the turning point. And after that, everything changed. And on a few months later, I was able to go to the president and say, Mr. President, at four different capitals in Europe, a Soviet diplomat has come up to ours, ours, one of ours and said virtually the same thing, which is, if Gromyko is invited to Washington when he comes to the General Assembly in September, he'll accept. In other words, the Soviets blinked. And I said to the president, you may want to think this over because Jimmy Carter cancel these traditional meetings when they invaded Afghanistan and they're still there. And he said, I don't have to think it over. Let's get them here. So it was a huge event. So Nancy Reagan was a pal of mine, and she always fixed me up with Hollywood starlets at White House dinners, so I got to dance with Ginger Rogers and stuff like that. <laughs> so I went to Nancy and I said, Nancy, what's going to happen is Gromyko's going to come into the Oval Office. We'll have a meeting. Then we all walk down the colonnade to the mansion, which is your home, and we'll have some stand-around time and then I'm working lunch. It would be a nice gesture, as we're trying to warm things up here, if you were there for the stand-around time, you're the hostess. So she agreed. So we walk down and Gromyko sees Nancy, he knows she's influential. So he goes right over to her and pretty soon he says to her, husband want peace? Nancy could bristle. She said, of course my husband wants peace. And then he said, well, then every night before he goes to sleep, whisper in his ear, peace. <laughs> but he was a little taller than she was. So she put her hands on his shoulder and she pulled him down so he had to bend his knee. And she said, I'll whisper in your ear, peace. <laughs> I said, Nancy, you just won the Cold War. <laughs> but... Right after that, Gromyko and I got the arms control negotiations going and everything changed. This is all before Gorbachev. But the turning point in the Cold War came without a shot being fired because of the importance of the strength that was exhibited by the NATO allies. So strength is the name of the game. You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for one of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at commonwealthclub.org. Now, back to our program. So we crossed from strength to force in Grenada, but there have been many examples where we didn't, like, for instance, Ukraine more recently, when uh, having a conflict with Russia. So why would we intervene in Grenada but not in Ukraine? Well, 
Here's my opinion about how we should be handling Russia. First of all, examine what's going on in that country with care. You see the population decreasing. You see the age structure changing, as I described earlier. You see a lot of their best innovative research people emigrating. Silicon Valley's full of them. So you see an economy that's not as size as Italy's and shrinking. So Putin is presiding over a weak country, but it has a strong military capability. He needs a Pershing moment. He needs to have something happen like the deployment of the Pershing missiles. What that would be, I'm not close enough to know what it would be, but if we did something about eastern Ukraine and kicked them out of there, why not? I don't know what, I mean, there's this bridge he's built to Crimea. Don't we still have a little clandestine capability to go in and do something about that bridge, don't fall down? <laughs> but we ought to do something to say stop because then there's a chance that we might have something constructive go on. And it's much better for him to have something constructive going on than the present stalemate. Furthermore, and this is another topic, but I worry a great deal about the proliferation of nuclear weapons. People have forgotten the strength and power of a nuclear weapon. Nuclear weapon dropped in the Bay Area, it's gone, it's not here anymore. It's, Ronald Reagan and I both thought nuclear weapons are uh, inhumane, and we wanted to get rid of them. And we made a lot of headway. But that's turned around now in the other way. And I think we have to figure out what to do about them. Most of the weapons are held by us and the Russians, but it's proliferating around. Well, what you need is fissile material. Once you have the fissile material, which Iran can get fairly easily, I think. Once you have the fissile material, it's not that difficult to make a weapon out of it. Putting a weapon on a missile and making it go intercontinental, that's a different matter, but getting the weapon itself. After all, the Hiroshima bomb was dropped from an airplane and it was made from, fissile material was the basis of it. So we have to figure out how to talk with them. And Sam Dunn, and Bill Perry and I wrote a piece in the Wall Street Journal recently, and what we suggested was, why doesn't the Congress take some initiative and appoint a high-level observer group and agree to go with the administration if they meet with the Russians somewhere in Geneva or somewhere and be part observers of the negotiation? So that would take the political edge off it. And then if we can get going with the Russians, invite other countries that have nuclear weapons to join us and see if we can't get things going and getting these things down instead of the proliferation because sooner or later one's gonna go off and it goes off and it's terrible. Bill Swing gave a sermon at Grace Cathedral and it's reprinted, it's the only thing I didn't write that's reprinted in the book, but it's a marvelous piece and he says, that uh, thinking about extinction is good for you. But he says, at the end, he says, you put your hand on the Bible and swear to be president of the United States, that's the least of it. It's what you put your finger on the nuclear button. Who's, who is it says any human being should be able to push a button and kill a million people? That's not man, that's God. So it's wrong, and we really must do something about it. Um, I, Bishop Swing ends his sermon talking about accountability once again uh, for each of us, what we did to preserve or destroy creation while we had the opportunity to do that. When you're talking about uh, meetings between the U.S. and the Russians on nuclear weapons, do you mean official meetings or is there an important role for track two diplomacy, more private efforts to get something going with the Russians? Well, private efforts may be okay, but they're very difficult to do under this environment because we have this sanctions regime that covers lots of people. And Russians may want to talk to us in order to break the sanctions. But 
one of the people I work with named Jim Timby, who's a PhD in physics for a long time ago and worked on arms control, he and a couple of other people went over as part of an American Academy of Sciences to Moscow recently. They found lots of Russian scientists who are also worried and want to talk. And so there is at that level a good atmosphere, but it's got to start at the top somehow or other, I think, for it to be effective. I know Jim Timby also, and he's the only person who had a bureau at the State Department designated just as T. <laughs> T for Timby. Yeah, well, he was very, he and Paul Nitze were very helpful to me as I was working the nuclear issues. And he's retired recently after spending his career. And he now comes to work with me at Hoover. And we have a major project going on. We'll get back to that. Um, there are a number of questions from the audience. So let's go through some of them on some of the topics we've covered and some others. Russian hacking, action attack on our elections. What should be the official response? Do you believe that it did happen, it didn't happen? Well, I think the Mueller report makes it very clear that it did happen. Apparently, there wasn't any collusion between the Trump, Trump campaign and the Russians, but it happened. And I think they will continue to happen. So we need to understand it and develop defenses against it. And also let them know that we can apply a wrecking ball to their economy if they're not careful. So I think this is something we need to take seriously, not only with Russia, but other countries. And this is something that's happening. This is a new world, cyber world. And we need to be on top of it and take care of ourselves properly. A question about democracy and totalitarianism. In the last 50 years, we've gone from totalitarianism to many democracies. However, we seem to be losing many democracies. Please comment on the future of democracies. The future of democracy has just got to be bright. It's the, freedom is the way to go. Freedom gives you not only the opportunity to worship as you want, to do as you want, but also it leads to economies that are open and prosperous. And you look around the world, the prosperous economies are all the ones that are open. So it's essential to do that. And that means we've got to be sure we make our own democracy work. That's the big thing, the example. And I think it can be done, but we need to be working at it. Speaking of that, someone wants to know, do you think we should consider eliminating the Electoral College? Eliminating the Electoral College in the U.S.? No, a lot of people say the president should be elected by popular vote. When you look back at our history, the notion was they're big states, but they shouldn't be able to rule over small states. When the Senate was created, here were Washington, Jefferson, Madison, residents of Virginia, the biggest, most populous state in the Union, and they agreed that little despised Rhode Island would have the same number of seats in the Senate that they did, on the principle that big cannot roll over small. If you had elections, if you eliminated the Electoral College and just had the popular vote, well, nobody campaigned in Iowa anymore. Ignore them. Only come to the big states. So I think the idea of having something that ensures that small states with different constituencies, different problems to get paid attention to is a good idea. Here's a lighthearted question. Was there an embarrassing, funny, or awkward situation that happened to you due to an interpreter in any of your international negotiations? Was there an embarrassing, funny, or awkward situation to do with interpretation or translation of the discussion? I don't think so, but the translation business is interesting because when I, I mentioned earlier, when I first met Shevardnadze, I said to him, you and I are going to have a private meeting in the American ambassador's residence tomorrow. And here's the deal, if you're agreeable. Each one of us will have a microphone and a hearing aid. The interpreter will be out of the room so as you are talking, the interpreter is interpreting. 
and I'm hearing what you're saying as you're saying it. And I can look at the facial expressions, the body language. It's a better communication. So he agreed. And afterwards, I asked him how it went. He said it was great. We got twice as much done. Didn't have to wait for consecutive translations. And it, it was um, helpful. So that was carried over and was an innovation in the Reagan-Gorbachev discussions. And both of them were very big body language people. So it really helped a lot. So I think there's a big difference between consecutive translation and simultaneous translation. In the book, you say much about Israel. Uh, I think as you talk about trust in particular, uh, and the trust that you have felt between the Israeli leadership sometimes and the U.S. government. Comment on the one-two-state situation, the one-state, two-state situation in Israel. Well, I think right now it's almost impossible because the Palestinians don't want it. And the Israelis probably don't trust it either. After all, they pulled out of uh, um, Gaza, and what's happened? It's become a hostile territory with people declaring they want to eliminate Israel and attacking Israel with rockets and so on. So that doesn't bode well. But I think we should go back to something that was happening some time ago. I forget, it was like maybe 10 years ago or something like that. I was in Israel, and um, the man who was the Palestinian Authority, I'm forgetting his name at the moment, but anyway, he came to see me. And he said, I am developing a strong economy in the West Bank. And we're developing institutions and schools. And everything is getting better. People are living better. And he said, this is all being done with the full-scale cooperation of Israel, although yeah. nobody knows that's happening. They're doing it way below the radar. But it's working. And then another man came, his name was Dayton. He was a U.S. Army Lieutenant General. And he said, my job is to create a Palestinian security force in the West Bank. I said, really? He said, yeah. I said, well, who nominates the Palestinians? He said, the Palestinians do. Then what happens? Then we vet them. Then what happens? Then the Israelis vet them, but nobody is supposed to know the Israelis vet them, but everyone's sure the Israelis vet them. Then they go to Jordan and they get trained. And then they come back. Where do they get their arms? The Israelis provide the arms, although nobody's supposed to know it. So here are the Israelis encouraging a stronger economy and a security force on the West Bank, all very quietly. I talk, when I was on the trip, I talked to Bibi, who was prime minister at the time, and Shimon, who was president. They were both very well aware of it and very uh, much aware of the importance of giving all the credit to the Palestinians for creating this better life for themselves. And I think that should have been continued. I told this to a new Secretary of State who was, I could see was determined to uh, be the guy who negotiates the two-state solution. I said, don't do that. As soon as you start negotiating, you're emphasizing the things that people don't agree on. Whereas this situation is developing, they're finding things they agree on and they're working it out. And when you fail, and you will fail, you will have made the situation worse, not better. But it went ahead anyway. And I think both Palestinians and Israelis have come to see me and sense that it made the situation worse. So let's try to get back to arranging things so that people have a better quality of life for themselves and more dignity and respect. The idea, for instance, of the Palestinian security force and that idea still goes on, is when a Palestinian goes to a checkpoint, he or she is not checked by an Israeli, they're checked by a Palestinian. So there's more dignity, more respect. So there are things that can be worked out. And if this went on long enough, maybe there would emerge a Palestinian state that you could recognize. But trying to negotiate it right now, I think, is impossible. Another observation of yours is that about the need for a coherent strategy in foreign policy. And I'm reminded that from the Nixon and Carter 
Nixon, Carter, Reagan administrations, there was always, usually at the beginning of the year or every couple of years, a statement by the Secretary of State or the President to Congress about the strategy and direction of American foreign policy. And perhaps it changed with Bill Clinton, who was more of a domestically focused president, but I haven't, we, we haven't really had those kind of coherent statements in recent years. Could you say a little bit about this uh, concept of a, the need for a directed, uh, coherent foreign policy strategy? Well, in the Reagan period, we had a strategy, and we stuck with it. I think it's important to have something you stay with. You're not changing it around all the time. And our basic uh, concepts were these. Number one, be relentlessly realistic. Don't kid yourself. Be sure you are very, very realistic about what's going on. I remember when President Reagan called the Soviet Union an evil empire, people went bananas. And my friend Paul Nitze was testifying. He was a great man. And finally, before the Senate Armed Services Committee, and all the senators were after him about it. And finally, the chairman says to him, well, Paul, how can you serve an administration where the president would call the Soviet Union an evil empire? And Paul said, Mr. Chairman, have you considered the possibility that the statement might be accurate? <laughs> So it was accurate, and we were realistic. So that was number one. Number two, be strong. Obviously, militarily, but you're going to have a strong military unless you have a strong economy. But beyond that, you need to have sort of strength of purpose. You need the country with you to say, yes, we're on the right track. And then figure out what your objective is in any negotiation. Don't think about what the other guy wants, or you'll be negotiating with yourself. Figure out what you want, and then go ahead and engage. That was a basic strategy. And then we had our strategy with the Soviet Union, with China, and so on, uh, all of which were uh, basically laid out in congressional testimony, and we sort of stayed with it, and they basically worked. So do we have such a strategy today? If not, why not? I don't see that we do, and I don't know why not. I'm not there. I could speculate, but I won't. <laughs> All the tough questions come from the audience, so here's another one. What would Ronald Reagan think of the Republican Party today? <laughs> well, we need to have certain principles and ideas that we agree on. And we need to have things that have historically worked. And that needs to be, in a sense, the ideology of our party. And right now, we don't seem to have anything remotely like that. So I think somehow we need to create that ideology and uh, put it forward. It's interesting how you can identify these things. When World War II came to an end, the marginal rate of taxation and income was 90%. No wonder the economy went nowhere in the 1930s. But, and, but a young man named John F. Kennedy came along with some smart people as economic advisors, and he thought 90% was ridiculous. And he proposed reducing it to 70%, and Lyndon Johnson, who succeeded him, got it done. And the economy responded. And then comes Ronald Reagan, and he thought 70% was kind of high, and he got it down to 50, and the economy responded. So you loosen up on regulations, and you cut the tax rate, and the economy responds. So learn something once in a while. Come on. So. Um, no, you haven't asked me anything about climate change. Well, let, well let's. That's but on this my is, This is on a my big list. issue. Okay, so. I don't know what's the matter with your the, questioning. It's, it's right here, number eight. So the, a climate insurance policy. Can you talk about that? Well, I think, first of all, that the climate is getting warmer. I don't think there's any question about it. You have to ask, if you don't like the science, I respect the science, why is it there's a new ocean being created in the Arctic? How come? How come the ice cap over Greenland is melting fast? How come reefs or all the, the Great Barrier Reef and the reefs in the Caribbean are all 
uh, acidifying. Why is that happening? It's because the ocean is getting warmer. Why are the fish moving north for the same reason? So obviously the climate is changing and there are big potential impacts and we need to do something about it. Let me give you an example of an impact. There's a wonderful woman down at Stanford at the medical school called Lucy Shapiro. She's the smartest person in any room she's in and she's fun. And she gave a paper at a meeting we had the other day and among other things she said, it is absolutely predictable that tropical diseases will come north. So we should be getting up our diagnostic and treatment capabilities so we're ready. And maybe we can figure out how we fix these mosquitoes so they don't do as much time. We should be doing that now. We're not doing it. Because in Washington, they think the climate isn't changing. So what we've suggested, and we've gotten nowhere with this either, but maybe it'll happen. We said, look, why don't we in California, we have good medical resources here. Let's go down to our southern border and let's figure out the answers. How do we, what are our diagnostics? What are our treatments and what can we do? And once we get our house in order, then we can invite other step, states to come and we'll hear our ideas. What are your ideas? <clears throat> Call it the new federalism. You can wake Washington up by saying, we don't need you, we can do the job ourselves. At any rate, that's just an example of what to do about <clears throat> because there are big impacts that are coming about. Now, what to do about it? I have been advocating, and we're beginning to get somewhere, a revenue-neutral carbon tax. Have a good substantial tax on carbon, and people will start paying attention. You make it revenue-neutral so there's no fiscal drag connected, like a regular tax, and you distribute it in equal amounts to each person, say, with a Social Security number. So it's basically progressive in its impact. So do that, that will make people pay attention. Then you have to say, well, okay, I'm paying attention, what do I do? Well, here we need to give substantial support to energy R&D. I have the privilege of chairing the advisory committee on the MIT energy effort, and I have some of the same idea at Stanford, so I see what these people are doing. And they are they're doing dramatic things. It's not an accident that the costs of solar power are much, much lower than they were six or seven years ago. It's because of the R&D. And they're getting somewhere. We will find out sooner or later how to manage large-scale storage of electricity. Once you do that, you've taken the intermittency problem away from it, uh, sun and wind. So that's a big step. And there are other steps that are going on. We had a session at Stanford the other day where, where people are talking about how you take carbon out of the atmosphere. That's distinct from restricting how much you put in. Let's see if we can get some out. And so we'll get somewhere on this. So there are all kinds of things that can be done if we will get after it. Now, <clears throat> I learned from my experience with President Reagan about we, we had a lot of scientists thought that the ozone layer was depleting. There were some who didn't think so. But I had the privilege of twice a week private meetings with the president. We talked about this, and he became convinced that the scientists who were worried were right. If the ozone layer depletes, the result is catastrophic. So he did something that nobody does today. Today, if somebody disagrees with you, you try to demolish them. He put his arm around the people who disagreed. He said, you disagree, we respect you. But you do agree that if it happens, it's a catastrophe. So why don't we take out an insurance policy? That didn't get him on our side, but it got him off our back. And the result was the Montreal Protocol, which everybody now agrees came just in time and is an international treaty that worked. So I think the insurance policy idea is an idea worth keeping in the back of your mind. The climate people, deniers, maybe they will agree that an insurance policy is not a bad idea. But there are lots of things that can be done. And then, of course, we have to reach out and see what happens in India and China. And in Japan now, they're building coal plants. Come on, let's stop. Let's do other things. We can do other things. 
LNG is a big possibility, but there are all kinds of other things to be done. So this is an urgent matter. And the problem is that the time you let go by without doing anything is time you've lost. It isn't though you can go and make it up. You can't. You've got to take advantage of the time you got right now. So this is an urgent problem. I put it up alongside nuclear weapons as something that's uh, got grief for everybody if we don't get busy. And as our audience probably knows, for 11 years, the Commonwealth Club has had a project called Climate One, educating about climate change, new technologies, promoting dialogue. I think The Commonwealth Club is always ahead of the we, game. I we, hope you notice. We, we try to think ahead. And I think Greg Dalton, the founder and director of Climate One, is here, and we thank him for his concerted work over the last 11 years. Um, what about high-speed rail, then? It's a short-hop airlines are one of the greatest carbon emitters uh, into the atmosphere. Uh, this faux pas or whatever happened with our governor uh, saying that it wasn't going to happen, and now the Trump administration has canceled $900 million in funding for the project. What should happen about high-speed rail in the U.S.? I don't consider myself an expert on it, but... From what I read, it's very difficult to imagine it happening. But um, what bits can happen are worth probably going ahead with and trying to have our transportation system as carbon uh, free as possible. Certainly our automobiles. And I have a little project of my own. Here's an example. I've had solar panels on my house down at Stanford for now for about 10 years. I've long since paid for them by what I've saved on my electricity bill. They produce more electricity than my electric car uses. So what's the cost of my fuel? Zero. What's not to like? Come on. It works. So what, what electric car are you driving? I, I drive a Volt, which um, takes me all around campus and around town as much as I want. And so it has... If I use too much, it, it kicks into a little gas engine. But we hardly ever use that. We charge it every night, and we go on electricity. I, but now there is a Chevy has something called a Bolt that goes 230 miles. So I think this is accelerating rapidly. I remember that we shared the experience of driving EV1s back in the 90s, the General Motors attempt to create an electric car and you were one wasn't of, an attempt they created one well they did although it went away after six years but you were one of the members of the gm board who advocated for general motors making what was the first really viable long distance electric car well that wasn't very long distance but it worked when miles. i was on the gm board long long time ago we always had a meeting at the proving grounds a board meeting and after the meeting was over, you go and you, they had the GM cars and other people's cars. And they always had an electric car. It was usually a, um, a wagon of some kind. And I drove it. So I became something of a pest in the boardroom. And I kept saying, come on, you know how to do this. Why don't you make a car? So after I left the board, they got a hold of me and said, we now have this EV1. And maybe you'd like to drive one. So they gave me one. I drove it around. And actually... When I was courting my wife, Charlotte, I had it, and I let her drive it, and I think it was one of the things that helped me. But anyway. <laughs> and I'd like it, to say It was that a nice little car, and then there was an EV2, but then they stopped. I was sorry to see that. We were, too. We had two of them, actually. I'd like to uh, recognize our wonderful Charlotte Schultz, who's here on the front row. Still chief of protocol for the city of San Francisco, and I, also, I think also for the state of California. We, but let me make a, we so appreciate what you do. But let me make a comment of things that Charlotte does that are relevant to this broader discussion. I think one of the great problems in the world of governance is the problem of governing over diversity. And people don't know how to do it. They try to suppress it or ignore it, and that doesn't work. So San Francisco is one of the most diverse cities in the world. 
there's some 70 consulates here. So every country has a national day, like we have the 4th of July. So on every country's national day, Charlotte has a little event at City Hall. They fly that country's flag. They play its national anthem. She says, welcome to San Francisco. We're glad you're here. Your diversity brings greater creativity to us and so on. So she's helping the mayor govern over diversity by recognizing it and welcoming it and including it in something broader. So she's governing over diversity. I remember once, first time I visited Israel was in 1969. And for some reason, I was lucky enough that Teddy Kollek, the mayor of Jerusalem, took me over. And we went from one party to another. Everybody having a great time, all different from each other. And then Teddy took me to his office, and all of a sudden I realized he's teaching me something. He said, my job as mayor of Jerusalem is to make Jerusalem a beautiful, a beautiful picture. But it's not a painting, like you think of a picture where the colors merge. My beautiful picture is a mosaic. He said, you saw all these groups tonight, all having a good time, all different from each other. My job is to see that they can express themselves as they want, as long as they do it in such a way that doesn't prevent somebody else from expressing themselves. And that they're all glad to live on what he called the Golden Dome of Jerusalem. So Teddy was very consciously governing over diversity by letting it express itself, but at the same time seeing that everybody felt included in something broad and good. So we have to learn that lesson from Charlotte and Teddy and learn how to govern over diversity because it's the key. And Nancy, Nancy Pelosi was with us last week, and she said several times, e pluribus unum. Well, that's been the history of the United States. We've been very fortunate. We're, we're a country with people from everywhere, and we've made it work by being inclusive. As I said, all the hard questions come from the audience. Um, could you tell us what learnings we have from the Theranos episode? What, what should we learn from that episode? Well, you learn that trust is the coin of the realm, and when it turns out there's somebody you can't trust, it blows up. Okay. <clears throat> Another audience question. Is there one event or conversation in your career that you would have handled differently on reflection? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, I had, in the Nixon administration, we did a lot of really good things that um, impressed me. For example, in 1970, the schools in seven Southern states were still, still segregated. This was like 20 years after the Brown decision. People think the Brown decision decided something. Well, it did, but nothing happened. They were still. So he decided to desegregate them, and I was the chairman of getting it done. And that was a really interesting process for me. We find biracial committees, and we said to the president, we're not going to pay any attention to the politics of people. We want strong, respected people. And it was interesting. We brought them up to Washington, and I'd bring them to the Roosevelt Room, and they'd blow off steam. I learned by a labor license experience, a lot of people blow off steam for a while. But as long as they're arguing principle, they're never going to get anywhere. So I'd have the attorney general come in. I said, Mr. Attorney General, when the school's open, what are you going to do? He said, I'm going to enforce the law. Thank you. Leave. So then I could say, well, been an interesting discussion this morning, but it's irrelevant. It's going to happen. Now the question is, what's going to be the result? These are your communities. These are your children. These are your educational systems. So then they start solving problems. And Americans love to solve problems. And so we'd work on that. And then when they were in the right mood, about 3 o'clock in the afternoon, I'd take them across the hall to the Oval Office. And the president was really magnificent. He'd say, here we are in the Oval Office. Think of the decisions that are made here that affected the security and welfare of our country. 
Well, I've made my decision. But that's not enough in a country like ours. People out in the states and communities have to make their decisions. And that's where you come in. You have work to do, and we will work with you. And I remember we came to the end, and Pat Moynihan, who was on my team, and I decided that we should take the last one to the south. And so we decided this was to Louisiana to go south for the first meeting. And then we wanted to organize the co-chairman of each of the other states to come in the late afternoon and we'd have a joint meeting, be sort of a kickoff, and do it in the south. So I, we have a meeting in the Oval Office and I make my pitch. And Vice President Agnew is there. And he says, Mr. President, don't go. There you will be in a room, half the people will be black, half the people will be white. There's going to be blood running through the streets of the South. Blood will be on your hands, don't go. So the President looks at me and I said, well, Mr. President, whatever happens, it's on your watch. But these people have come up here. You've met with them and inspired them. They haven't been idle. They've been working and we've been working with them. We're getting somewhere. And we think that if you go down to the South and pay your respects, it'll help. So he decides to go. So we go down to Louisiana, Pat and I, and we start with the Louisiana group. It's not going as well as usual. And I'm saying to myself, finally, it's one thing to bring Prinkle to the White House. It's another thing to have people meet in a hotel room in their hometown. It's not the same. But finally, we get almost there. But I have to go out to the president when he comes and say, you're going to have to put this over yourself at the end, which he did. And then we had the general meeting. It was like a revival meeting. Have you thought of this problem? Have you thought of that problem? What are you doing about this? It was just inspiring, fantastic. And so the schools opened, and there was no violence. It was a miracle. So it was a great thing. But I think of Vice President Agnew. How wrong can a person get? That turned out to be not the only wrong thing he ever did. That's true. That's true. We are unfortunately at the end of our time. Secretary Schultz, thank you for your incredible service to this country and the world, and thank you for your wisdom and for sharing it with us here today. Thank you. Our thanks to George Schultz, former U.S. Secretary of State, distinguished fellow at Stanford University's Hoover Institution, author of the new book, Thinking About the Future. He is always thinking about the future. Thank you to our audience here at the Marines Memorial in San Francisco and on radio, television, and the Internet. Please uh, remember you can pick up uh, signed copies of Secretary Schultz's book. He's already signed them. Uh, they're for sale in the lobby after the program. I'm Gloria Duffy. Now this meeting of the Commonwealth Club, the place where you're always in the know, is adjourned. <laughs>